From the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. On today's episode, we can't stop watching Rachel Brosnahan. She's nominated for Outstanding Actress in a Comedy Series for her role as Midge, a 1950s housewife turned stand-up comic in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. As Midge becomes better and she understands how to interact with an audience and, and she's finding her rhythm and her pace and, and how she lands and crafts jokes successfully, I find myself watching that very, very carefully with other stand-ups, just hoping to absorb a fraction of their talent. Rachel tells me which family member reminded her about the Emmy nominations this year and where she thinks Midge is headed after the shakeup in the latest season finale. And yes, if you're wondering, we do talk about the Golden Arm episode of Quibi's 50 States of Fright. Here we go. This podcast is presented by Blackish on ABC. The comedy series takes a fun yet bold look at one man's determination to establish a sense of cultural identity for his family. Blackish is nominated for four Emmy Awards, including Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy, Tracy Ellis Ross, Outstanding Lead Actor in a Comedy, Anthony Anderson, Outstanding Contemporary Costumes, and Outstanding Contemporary Hairstyling. More info and episodes at abc.com. Rachel, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Um, Would you say you've mastered the art of a Zoom call by now? Well, considering we had serious technical difficulties (laughs) getting on this call, I would say definitely not. I've learned a lot in quarantine, though, as someone who is completely technologically challenged. um, I've, I've had to figure out a thing or two. I have seen, though, that uh, maybe to pass time, you've taken makeup tutorials and stuff like that. I just did my first one. I I never really learned. I don't really. I don't really wear makeup. A lot of makeup in my in my real life, and uh, and I never really learned how to do it. So my amazing makeup artist Lisa Aaron gave the pod and I a little a little tutorial. How was that? It was so fun. I mean, when when do we have the time to do stuff like that? I feel very privileged to have that time now. But um, but it was really fun. And it was just, you know, it's just a nice way to get to see each other while we're while we're apart. Yeah. Well, I can't uh, start this conversation without giving you congratulations on your Emmy nomination. Thank you. What was that morning like? I mean, it's so hard to sort of distinguish the days now and to have so- something maybe sort of to look forward to might have been a nice change of pace? Or was it sort of like, uh, I don't know what's happening. I forgot this was happening. I totally forgot it was happening until my mother reminded me the day before, which is the worst. I'd rather forget it's happening. (laughs) Um, But I think she had like the countdown going, you know, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was so exciting. In you know, every day, as you said, time is a weird flat circle right now. And, and it both is going by, I feel like, so quickly or and, and so slowly at the same time. It was, 
it was such a nice way to feel connected to so many different pieces of our show. You know, we were supposed to go back in June, which was already later than we usually go back in March. And so we've been apart for the longest we have been since we started the show. And and to to keep getting these texts as, as nominations were coming out, you know, all the different actors and our hair and makeup teams and production designer and costume designer and sound. And it just, it was such a special way to celebrate this thing that we love and miss together from from a distance. But it was it was definitely a, a morale boost. Well, the first year you were nominated for the show was the year you won. And I wonder what you remember about being on that stage. Like, I remember, like, were you sitting near Laura Dern? I feel like I would just be trying to focus on Laura Dern from the stage. Like, who were you sort of zeroing in on when you were on that stage? I just blacked out. I feel like that that whole first cycle of all of that for us was was one giant blackout. I mean, it it I feel like I have like moments of lucidity in my brain, you know, moments like seeing Laura Dern. I, I actually don't remember. I really don't remember. I hardly remember anything other than like my heart beating out of my chest and just trying not to say something stupid. But I feel like I can't look at anyone, you know, like when I uh when I accepted the the Golden Globe, which was such a shock. I I saw Oprah in the front row and and forgot anything and everything I was maybe going to say and just I had a real moment. <laughs> and I feel like it it just has been it just feels like that all the time. I feel like a kid who got caught with my pants down or something like I just I, I don't know what to do or what to say. And you're like, I need to sound intelligent. Like, are people judging me by what I'm saying? That's all I would be thinking about. Am I making sense? Well, someone, someone, a stranger that I met on a plane actually said something to me that that really stuck with me, which is I was feeling kind of, I was having all kinds of mixed, strange feelings about the whole thing. You know, I love, I love this job. I love the work that I do. And, and while this stuff is really validating, I didn't, I didn't want to feel like I wanted it too much. You know, it does it doesn't change my relationship to this job. It's just the icing on the cake. And and I was feeling really strange about writing a speech for something that I didn't know if I was going to get or not. And uh and a stranger on a plane said to me, "Well, you know, how many times in your life do you have a captive audience of of millions of people and and if if you knew you could have that moment, what would you want to say? And that has that has really stuck with me. Wow, I need to start talking to strangers on a plane more. Um, have the Emmy producers sort of been in touch yet about setting you up for this virtual telecast? No, I have no idea what to expect. <laughs> I don't know what to wear. All I know is that I get to have my dogs with me at the Emmy Awards, which which is the coolest thing. I know. I'm like sort of interested to see like how many people still do the glam, uh, how many like what parts of the home we're going to see from the various stars, if they're going to do like a special backdrop, like those Zoom backdrops. How to do a Zoom backdrop, right? But I guess it's cool if you're, if, you know, if you're quarantining with your family, like your whole family, what a cool opportunity to be with those people at this thing that that normally, you know, you get a chance to bring one person to if you're lucky. 
yeah, it'll be an interesting night. I'm very sort of excited and uh, interested to see how it all pans out. I think like we all are, it'll also just be like something nice to sort of look forward to and see how everything unfolds. I want to obviously talk about this season of Maisel. Um, The season opens with Midge's sort of USO appearance, which featured hundreds of background actors. How was it to be on stage in front of that many people? I mean, usually Midge is, you know, playing to an intimate crowd at a club or a bar. So to sort of be performing in this way in front of so many people, what was that like for you? It was surreal. It felt a lot like accepting the Emmy Award, <laughs> honestly. Uh, it was absolutely horrifying and and completely thrilling. And the energy in that space was unlike anything I'd ever felt. You know, this we'd had two seasons of the show, so so many of the young men who played those actors were excited about the show, were fans of the show, and and everyone, you know, it's the first episode, everyone was so excited to be there. It was incredible. I, I imagine that that's what rock stars feel like performing a concert in a giant arena. I I get it now. I understand that, how that can become addicting. It was, it was amazing. And now, especially given that you know, who knows what things are going to look like when we're all lucky enough to be able to go back and start shooting again. To have been able to do that with that many people in one space now feels even more special. Did Alex ever get up on that stage and give a few of her own jokes? No. <laughs> but we did have a stand-up who was there to entertain the crowd between takes because it was so many people. It would be very difficult to bring everyone in and everyone out every time we needed to set up the camera differently. So there was a stand-up entertaining everyone. And and that made it feel like a real USO show in a way, that there were acts. Our AD got up there and gave one or two zingers of her own. It was um, It was wild. Did you watch many? Like, I don't know. I I should have looked myself, but were, were you able to find any on YouTube or anything like that? You know, I actually didn't look. Uh, there were some amazing photos that were used as reference for Midge's outfit for the USO show. Um, the, the sort of look she came in in with the jacket and the pants was inspired by a look that Marilyn Monroe wore to one of those. Um, but... I, I think I was just so panicked at that point about making sure that I knew the lines and trying to pretend that it was going to be just like every other stand-up set. So, I mean, much of Midge's comedy is about her own life in New York, her family, and she's usually playing to people of similar backgrounds. How was it to sort of see her this season be playing to bigger crowds, and from all walks of life, it was it was a little like a fish out of water element, even more so than in the past. Yeah, it was really fun to get to put Midge in various uncomfortable scenarios. This whole show, we started with a woman whose life was perfect in every way she could have possibly imagined. And those walls and, and they're, they're being ripped down little by little. And this season was another step forward and a handful of steps backward at times too. Uh, but as someone who, you know, even in the playing of Midge, just sometimes wants to like bop her over the head and be like, girl, wake up, come on. You know, um, it, was, it was fun to see her and to play her 
being humbled by realizing just how much bigger the world is than the one that she's lived in and succeeded in for so long. That I love that episode when she's in Vegas and, you know, she's just playing for people from all over the country and uh, and still a quite elite crowd. You know, it's the fancy room that she's playing and her jokes about New York and B. Altman and, and Bagels and Locks aren't landing. I just love like the aesthetic, like the visuals that we see with them being in Vegas. It was like a lot of eye candy. You didn't know where to look at times. That's how it felt in person too. And it was it was really exciting to see the camera be able to capture so much of that because it really was 360. We shot Vegas in a mansion in Queens. Wow, that's amazing. One of my favorite moments though is like, one is the scene where we get the synchronized swimmers. It's such a beautiful sequence. And seeing uh, you in the pool with Alex, how long did that take to film? Were you just like having fun in there? Oh, uh, no. No. Two translucently pale women out in the blazing Miami sun. Uh, I think that's poor Alex's least favorite scene we've ever shot. Alex got full heat stroke. She says that she finished the day, went home and threw up and then and then was felt better. But it was it was tough on us. <laughs> I'm glad that it looks so fun. And the scenes themselves were obviously really fun. They're so well written. They all are. It was fun to get to play out that dynamic between Midge and Susie. We were we were just dealing with so many of the elements shooting in Miami in June. It was monsooning, not unlike it is outside my window right now. I think we ended up having to shoot all of those pool scenes in one day when they were slated for two, because the first day we got through half of one scene and then were shut down by a huge storm. And so we were shooting those scenes at at a lightning pace. Uh, But thankfully, we got it all done. And those are some of my favorite scenes in the show. (laughs) As we see in this season, Midge is on a sort of months-long tour with uh, singer Shy Baldwin. And it was a development that was not well-received by some viewers. People really took issue with it and sort of viewed it as a form of child neglect, which was an interesting thing to sort of see materialize from, from this season in terms of how people responded to it. And I just wonder what you thought about those conversations that were happening. I mean, we see a lot of actors and so on, like, deal with mommy shaming on social media these days. And what did you think about how people viewed her decision to go on tour? It was fascinating and so frustrating. And and as not a mom outside of the boob tube in, in real life, uh, I feel like I got just the tiniest inkling of what it must feel like to be moving through the world or and especially maybe the states as a mom i it was so shocking uh you know i feel the need to keep reminding people that this it, these children have a dad who is now at home and with them full time Um, they have two sets of loving grandparents. They have Zelda. They have very active neighbors who have been referred to outside of the show. These children are being cared for by a village. And and it just has been so surprising to hear the extreme language being thrown around about how Midge is an abusive mom. And listen, I'm not advocating for Midge as mother of the year. She measures her child's forehead. You know, it's... it's, uh, it just has been so 
interesting. It's primarily women, and I and I think primarily women who have children who have been really turned off by that storyline. And I mean, even even some of the jokes, it's been surprising to hear the response. You know, one of the jokes that that I heard the most backlash from was when the family arrives in the Catskills and they leave the baby in the car and they go in and do all this stuff. And then they go, oh, we forgot the baby, you know, and run back. It's, it's a joke. you know. But man, it was not a joke. The number of people who told me that that's where they stopped watching the show because of how much we neglected mm-hmm. the children was shocking. And while I understand, you know, that we are accustomed to seeing stories about women who are mothers, where that is at the center of the story and their world, this just isn't that. This is a story about a woman for whom that part of her life, where motherhood was her identity, is being left in the past. It doesn't make her not a mom, but it makes her entering a new phase of her struggle with that relationship. And you see a little bit of that this season. She checks in with Joel. She doesn't love that the kids are doing things without her. Um, She's struggling to find balance, but the response has been infuriating in some ways that that a woman choosing work and prioritizing that in this moment is seen as child neglect. We still have a long way to go in the way that we view working moms in this country. This podcast is presented by Blackish on ABC. The comedy series takes a fun yet bold look at one man's determination to establish a sense of cultural identity for his family. Blackish is nominated for four Emmy Awards, including Outstanding Lead Actor in a Comedy, Anthony Anderson, Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy, Tracy Ellis Ross, Outstanding Contemporary Costumes, and Outstanding Contemporary Hairstyling. More info and episodes at abc.com. Well, another aspect in terms of mirroring the realities that we still face today was the discomfort women sometimes feel when discussing pay and knowing when to advocate for themselves and how to speak up about discrepancies. Um, How have you learned to navigate those issues and the importance of advocating for yourself when it comes to pay? That's a great question. Uh, It's one that I've actually been discussing a lot recently, I find. There's so many different ways to discuss this, and it's still challenging. it's, uh, It's not an easy discussion to have. I think I'm, the way that I view it, is a direct result of having been very, very fortunately surrounded by, particularly in this industry, a team that has always advocated on my behalf, a team that has always told me that it's okay to say no and to ask for what I want and to ask for what I think I'm worth. Um, and, And I feel like my entire view on this discussion has been shaped by that team. And I recognize that that's something that a lot of people and particularly a lot of women and particularly women of color do not have. Um, And there's a lot that we can be doing to 
work to keep lifting each other up and and lifting up those we know aren't having the same opportunities. Mm -hmm. Well, so much of the show is about Midge finding her voice as a comedian and finding her voice as a woman out on her own. And the show arrived at a time when women were sort of using their voices in a powerful way. And I wonder when, when would you say you found that for yourself? When did you say you came into your voice? That's a lovely question. I'm still coming into it. Um, I'm still learning how and when to use it and how and when not to. That comes through a practice of listening that that I feel like I'm still working on. I don't know if there was one moment in particular, but a time when I feel like I first became aware of how to use my voice was when I really began a practice of saying no. And that was something that was really hard for me as, as a, you know, a woman who grew up trying to please a lot of people and feeling that pressure from the world outside. You know, I still smile when I talk out of habit, you know, for fear of, of being perceived as rude or, or, um, uh, or like I'm not paying attention or something, you know? And I feel like it was when I first started realizing that saying no isn't rude or or bad in all the various ways that it can be, but but a but a powerful thing that can make your voice more powerful as a whole. In the season finale, Midge performs at the Apollo and basically outs shy in the process. And it was a tough set to watch, obviously through today's lens, uh, because it's filled with stereotypes. And I wondered how you felt about seeing Midge go there and do this? And was it hard for you to sort of wrap your brain around it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was so hard for me to understand that she wouldn't think she was doing anything wrong. It was hard for me to reach a place where Midge really believes that Reggie told her that this was okay, that the idea of it being a hometown crowd would mean that these were people who knew everything about him and that it would be sort of a fun inside set to be able to do. But, ooh, it was tough. (laughs) Especially knowing that at that time, how, how dangerous something like that would be. And and that's how I that's how I think I have to know that it wasn't intentional on Midge's part. Midge and Shy are friends. They've developed this beautiful friendship, but it's it's sheer ignorance. I am glad that she is paying a price for it. And I'm I'm really curious to see what that fallout looks like in season four. Yeah. I mean, we've seen various career like markers for Midge throughout the last couple seasons, last three seasons. Like This season in particular, like, she's played the stage at her husband Joel's club. She's had her first guest appearance on a late night show and even meeting Moms Mabley. Like, but obviously she comes down a few pegs at the end of the season and sort of has to start from square one, you know, and she's bought this house and now everything's sort of like up in the air for her. Um, What do you think is the best thing Midge could do for her career coming back in season four? Oh, man. I don't know. I, this is quite a pickle. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not sure. I, truly, only 
Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino hold the keys to this one. Uh, but I, I love watching the journey of this woman who has been blinded by this privilege that she's had her whole life, being forced to reckon with it. And it feels, it feels realistic to me that the reckoning is slow and slower than I would like it to be and slower than I think a lot of, a lot of folks watching would like it to be. It feels important to recognize that pace, but that doesn't stop me from wishing it could go a little faster sometimes. Um, God, I have no idea. I don't know. She's going to have to listen to Susie, I think. I think Susie will be the key out of this one. Mm-hmm. How how would you say you view stand-up specials today? Like, do you find yourself studying their techniques when you watch things now? I know at the beginning you were sort of looking to people of the time and what they were doing, but as you look at stuff that's current, are you watching it differently? Absolutely. I didn't really have a lot of experience in the world of stand-up at all. I, I wasn't really someone who watched stand-up specials or went to comedy shows outside of, I have a couple of friends who are stand-ups and I went to their shows, but it was a world that felt so foreign in every way. And prepping for the first season meant trying to immerse myself in the comedy world of the past, but also the comedy world of the present. I went to a lot of beginner stand-up shows, mostly to see how first-time stand-ups or young stand-ups uh, dealt with success and failure in real time. And now, absolutely, I'm as Midge becomes better and she understands how to interact with an audience and and she's finding her rhythm and her pace and and how she lands and crafts jokes successfully. I find myself watching that very, very carefully with other stand-ups, just hoping to absorb a fraction of their, of their talent. But I love watching Ali Wong. I watched an old Eddie Izzard set the other day. So good. It's it's interesting to see the the onstage personas and how they shift over time. I want to take a moment to ask you about another one of your projects. Can we talk about The Golden Arm? This was a horror short that was part of Quibi's anthology called 50 States of Fright. Yes. And for and for those who don't know, each episode sort of focused on an urban legend from an American state. But please just tell me everything about, one, the pitch to you about Golden Arm, what that was like performing with the Golden Arm, um, the the story, like what was going through your mind. This was like, everyone was talking about it on Twitter. So give me your thoughts. <laughs> it's so funny. It really kind of took on a life of its own that was so unexpected and, and uh, insulting in some ways. <laughs> but it, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's so simple. I, I We shot a, a really long and challenging season of Maisel. I was looking at a short period of time off, but not long enough to do, you know, I had I had a film that I was shooting in the fall starting in October called I'm Your Woman. And, you know, I was just planning to kind of travel around a little bit and hang out with some friends and was going to be in Vancouver. And an opportunity came up. I got on a call with Sam Raimi, who told me about this thing. 
I guess I should preface this by saying that I I love these stories. Like I love campfire stories. I love weird mythology and and uh and sort of that all that genre stuff and have never really done it, you know, and and got on a call with Sam, who is most delightfully one of the strangest people I have ever met. And his love for this kind of stuff is infectious. As someone who I think had always been curious about putting on a crap load of prosthetics and, and you know, and, and <laughs> living in that space, um, Sam just loves it. It oozes out of his pores. And it just sounded like like a fucking blast for five days of shooting to get to do something in such a short period of time, you know, on this new platform. I've worked on a lot of new platforms at the beginning of them. And, and I find that that idea and that process of, of a new platform finding its identity very exciting. Um, again, this is long before we knew, we, we really knew what Quibi was. I had no idea what Quibi was. And uh, and bottom line, it, it was a fucking blast. We spent five days in the woods in Vancouver playing with puppetry and 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 practical makeup and and prosthetics and a golden arm. And I feel like the thing that was missed in all of this is that it's it's camp. Like it's it's a campfire story. <laughs> it's not serious. <laughs> I feel like people being like, people who were like, I can't believe that everyone's taking this so seriously. I was like, you pulled a scene from the middle where she's dying of pulmonary gold disease. <laughs> what? what did you think this was supposed to be? <laughs> but what sells it is like, you treat this like I'm, I'm dedicated to this. And that's what works about it. How else are you supposed to do it? You know, <laughs> if someone has another way, I would love to know. But not unlike Midge, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it 150%. And this was, again, like in a, in a, as much as Maisel is so fun in a lot of ways, it's really, really hard. It was a long and tough season and we were exhausted. And this was an opportunity to fuck around in layers of zombie makeup for five days in the woods and and with Sam Raimi and not look back. Well, you mentioned that that uh, Maisel was supposed to be back in production in June. I'm assuming you've seen maybe a few scripts by now. Something, nothing. I have absolutely zero idea what's happening next season. Which is fun and scary, but fun. You know, it, it all lives inside Amy and Dan's mysterious brains. I think once a year, Amy and I get wasted on Irish coffee at some hotel lobby in the city, and she spills the beans a little bit, just a little, about what's to come. And our, our yearly Irish coffee date was like two days after the city shut down. So we are overdue. <laughs> Do you have some sense of where things are going or none? I had a little bit of an idea of where the first three seasons were headed from as early as the pilot. Uh, they had they really had mapped it out and and it helped craft the character quite a lot. But no, I've this is the first time I'm going in completely blind. Does Amy text you? Amy will text all of us a couple times a year. 
I remember, especially in the cat skills, there were a lot of random skills that we all had to have for season two. So I know Marin got a text that said, do you speak French? And Michael got a text saying, can you bowl? <laughs> and I got one saying, do you know how to ride a bike? <laughs> can you play ping pong? And then one before season three saying, oh, by the way, you're getting the script on Monday, but uh, there's going to be 850 background for your first stand-up set. I hope that's cool. <laughs> but it can be reduced to 250 if that's too many. And I was like, what? Just crazy in the best way possible. How are you feeling, though, about getting back to work? Are you ready? How nervous are you? How do you think it'll feel different? I, I'm so excited to get back to work as soon as it's, as soon as it's safe. We've been doing this for a couple of years. We're a family and we want to make sure that we're looking out for our very large family on this particular show. Um, so I'm not sure exactly when we're going back, but I know that we will as soon as it's safe enough. I know that it's everyone's goal to keep the spirit of the show very much intact and alive. And I feel like, I feel confident that we will be able to do that. Well, before I let you go, I'm hoping you can give our listeners maybe some TV recommendations. Have you, is there anything you've watched in quarantine that you think our listeners should give a chance to or? I have primarily been watching Survivor. Uh, old seasons of Survivor, there are some very good ones. Um, the, the latest season is fantastic. It's been a nice, a nice escape. Uh, highly recommend it. <laughs> um, uh, but also the, the fourth season of Insecure. So good. What else? Oh, I'm catching up on Succession, which is so good. My God, the second season. I'm, I have one episode left in the second season. There's so many things on my list to watch. Normal people's at the top of my list. That's a solid list, I think. Very good list. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. You too. Thank you for asking such great questions. That's it for the 33rd episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guests for this podcast. Come back tomorrow for another special bonus episode of Can't Stop Watching. We're talking to Samira Wiley, who was nominated for Best Supporting Actress in a Drama Series for portraying Moira in The Handmaid's Tale. Jeez, I, I don't know how anyone honestly can just like be as badass as Moira. She inspires me so much. Um, it's really, I think, helped me grow. If you like Can't Stop Watching, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Shaw. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you tomorrow.